Here we are at the Glenn Show. Uh, I'm with John McWhorter, my regular conversation partner. We're in a somewhat different setting, a penthouse apartment in midtown Manhattan, where a high-tech film crew is recording our conversation. This is the first at the Glenn Show, perhaps not a last. I'm looking over at the producer right now to see if we're going to do this on a regular basis. But it's the Glenn Show. I'm Glenn Lowry. I teach at Brown University. I'm with my conversation partner, John McWhorter. He teaches at Columbia University. He writes for the New York Times Magazine. I, I am too. a distinguished visiting fellow, newly appointed at the Hoover Institution. I'm happy to be able to report. And we're here to talk about this and that. How you doing, John? I'm pretty good. We're in a, we're in a penthouse apartment. Yeah, man. <laughs> so that'll if, do. If we keep this up, we might even be able to afford to live in, Actually, a to live in one. one of these days. <laughs> <laughs> We're working on that. No, this is fun. So, what's going on? You are uh, a columnist at the New York Times. I just happened to visit uh, the newsletter page. Mm -hmm. It is complimentary right now to those who are not subscribers to the Times, but I may have to actually re uh you know do my subscription i canceled and i canceled in peak i wonder why yeah yeah like two years ago i just got <laughs> so fed up with the bs i had to cancel but uh, now that you're there uh writing for the times how's that going well it's only really been officially going for about a week but um i thought about it long and hard and I decided that I wanted to give it a try because you only go around once. I could get hit by a bus. I'm 55, you know, who knows what will start happening to me cognitively like tomorrow. Oh, you don't say that. I don't mean you, but I just mean me. <laughs> who, who knows? And so I figured let's try this because, you know, there is the brand and the idea is basically for me to do what I was doing at Substack. But for them, they're starting, they're cultivating a, a newsletter presence. And the nice thing about it is this. I don't particularly like writing columns that are like seven or 800 words long. I can yeah. do it, but I don't think in 700 words. I yeah. frankly think in 15. Yeah. And I, then I have to trim it down. This is basically, you can call it a newsletter, but they are asking me to write a 1500 word essay yeah. every three days until I hit the dirt. And as far as I'm concerned, it's a big challenge, but I think in 15. And so I decided I'm going to submit myself to this challenge. And I think I finished the third one last night. And I did ask the people who invited me to do this. I said, you know what I write. You know what I think. And I hope we understand that I'm going to keep doing that. I'm not going to pull back. I'm going to write the sort of stuff that especially I've been doing on Substack where I have really, I just write down exactly now, what I think. you're not talking when you say this about the form. You're talking about the substance. Talking about the substance. And I said, you know, this, these are things that usually I don't see on the Times page. And they said that they, un they understand what they're getting and that, that they, they have my back. So, so far, it's been smooth sailing. I just have to come up with something to say every three days, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try my best. That's daunting, man. 1,500 words every three days. That's somebody's whole life. And they didn't say 15, but I can tell that's what I'm going to naturally do once I'm finished. But, you know, something like that. Uh, Irving Crystal, that's Bill Crystal's father, the late uh, great uh, social commenter and intellectual, once said to me, 
Uh, we were at a cocktail party on Martha's Vineyard, if I can drop that one. He did that. <laughs> the year was early 1980s, 1982, 1983. I can picture the view. Yeah. And Daniel Bell, the late great sociologist, Harvard sociologist, was the host of this party. And Irving says, you know, Daniel writes at 50,000 words. I write at 5,000 words. <laughs> wow. They so you that? write at 1,500 words. Wow. If, wow. That's and I write at 700 words if I can find 700 words to put together. <laughs> Five thousand? That's well. A that's writer. that's a typical Irving Crystal essay that would go in some place like the Atlantic or commentary, commentary or something right. like that. Yeah. And Daniel Bell is going to write either a small book or a chapter he's for some large monograph. compendium where he's right. going to be encyclopedic and comprehensive in his yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's it's fifteen hundred. That's the thought. So it's going to be it's going to be interesting. Some people have actually said, "Well, then that's your job." Like they're beginning exactly. to scare me because I wasn't thinking I was going to give up my Columbia job and I'm not, but it's going to be a matter of time scheduling, being more careful about it than I've always been. But I think I can, I think I can do it. Are you banking ideas? Do you have, you know, like a, a set of things that, you know, I have a grab bag you can go to. Yeah. And I'm always throwing things into the bag and, you know, you use the one that pops out. Sometimes it'll be about the news right now. Sometimes something comes to me while I'm in the shower, but then I do have that grab bag in case neither one of those things happens. Yeah. People ought to check you out. They ought to check you out. I looked at the I first so. two. Yeah. Uh, you did a, a genealogy, a uh, history of the word woke, and I did. it has gone through its various incarnations. Mm -hmm. You predicted by 2028 we won't be using that word anymore. There'll be a new word. Superseded by something. It's going to be some other term. Yeah. And then you did this beautiful piece on uh, an as yet unproduced black opera. Got to get it produced. Porgy and Bess variety or something but like that. But it's about rich black people. And it is about black people who don't have white people problems. They have problems with each other. And it was written by Harold Arlen, who wrote Somewhere Over the Rainbow and Stormy Weather. So that's somebody who can write a melody. And Johnny Mercer, who did lyrics like Blues in the Night. And he is a white Southerner. And both of them were very, as we would say today, black adjacent artists. And they wrote this opera that never really got produced. And my friend John Melcherry, who is um, a conductor extraordinaire, dug up all the materials from, frankly, all over the world. And he has this genius amanuensis who graduated from Columbia's music department. His name is Michael Gilden. He's a wunderkind. And the two of them put it all together. They called me in to check out the Black English and also to just kind of check it out because they learned somehow that I like musical theater. And it's called Blues Opera, and it's so good, it almost makes you want to throw up a little bit. These guys are Broadway royalty, who <laughs> you're talking about. They're assist. Yeah. And how is it that uh, they can't get a show like this produced? Well, you know, the funny thing is, <laughs> this is or a couldn't get. interesting Glenn Show topic, but it was the late 50s, and what it really was is Harold Arlen was ill, and so at the time when he could have been getting it up off the ground, he was in the hospital. And the two of them had written another musical that only fanatics need to know anything about that was a disaster that took up all of their time. And by the time they both brushed themselves off, they were on to other things. Arlen was on a general decline. He had a lot of problems in his life. And so it just never happened. Anybody who is at that level has a trunk full of things that never happened. And half of what's in the trunk is splendid. In this case, blues opera is the thing that both of them never saw happen and should have. So the idea is to get this thing going. And it's not a musical. It's an opera. Rich and black people, not poor black people. It's about a jockey and a courtesan. 
She's fresh from the anniversary of the French Revolution, and now she's back. He is a jockey, and black jockeys were some of the richest black men in America. At the it's time. said in the 1890s. It's in the, the 1890s. That time. It's, <laughs> it's in, I think it's in the 1870s. We're not going to pin you down. I think the French Revolution was 1789 and following. That's <laughs> all I should know. It's in 1889. So she walks in. They never say what year it is, but yeah, that actually made it's It's 1889. So they're in the beautiful costumes. And you know, he is difficult, and he's physically quite small, and she is guarded because she's been hurt a lot, but they fall in love the way opera characters fall in love. So it's not just Broadway where people say, oh, you're cute, and sing a song. They actually learn about one another. It's a, it's a really, it's a great piece of work, and it needs to get out there. How do you spread the word? And I thought, well, if I'm writing for the New York Times, maybe I can say something about blues opera. And so hopefully there'll be some takers because the you know, racial reckoning i think that we should reckon with it but that's that's going to be my thing so blues opera now you said that um county cullen and uh, langston hughes had some hand in the they helped genesis write, they this. helped write the play that it's based on it's full I of see. their dialogue and arna bonton and so this is harlem renaissance material that these white guys got into later in the game. It's really Arna Bontemps' memoir that, of stories he was told about his family when he was a kid. And so it's all based on family lore. And then these men feasted up into this beautiful blues opera music. It's the weirdest music, but it's really, it's not Porgy and Bess. It's really blues and a bit of jazz, except played by a symphony orchestra. It's, it's, you and I would both get this. There's a little bit of a Mingus feel to a lot of it before Mingus, but it's that kind of crabs in the bucket feeling. It's not this, it's not, there's very little of that in it. It's a blues opera. So it's really, it's, it's worth a listen. It's worth a sight. Somebody's got to put this thing up. So I'm the emissary at this point. Yeah, and I should say, folks, it's not money. I have no financial stake in this. It's just a matter of art, as if I don't have better things to do. But this art must be seen. Well, let me just say this. As the economist in the room, if you are checking the libretto to make sure that they don't run afoul of the black English police, you ought to get paid. Should I really ask for money for that? No, you shouldn't ask for it. They should have offered it I to should. you at the jump. Should they have offered me money for that? <laughs> Do you realize that I've never thought of it until right now? I just, I'm going to listen to this man who's met everybody and I'm going to look at these materials. Okay, well then be charitable. But I I'm saying the value that. of your services are non-trivial. The value is non-trivial because you're, you're making it possible for them to actually get past the language police. Of course. You know, all the people who think you and I are just out to make money, this, we're not acting. I really never thought of it. I just thought... He knew all these composers, and I'm going to sit in John Mulcherry's basement. And well, that's good. You're getting wow. paid in that way. Then. And I thought of that as the payback. Being no, included on the inside of a Broadway oh, Glenn, production Glenn, in is, the making. This is the question. How much would you ask for that? And how would I find out? Like, if it's about money. This is a, I don't know how much. What would I say? Very good question, man. I'd have to ask uh, somebody. Well, if it hasn't been sold, then there is no market, and we don't have a price, which means it's all about bargaining. Yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about bargaining. I mean, if you're going to be mercenary about it. But the other thing to do is just to, 
yeah, just be uh, joyful about the participation in some creative dynamic and you'll get paid in the fullness of time. I mean, you'll get paid with the cachet of having your name in the credits and you'll nope. get paid with the personal relationships that you develop. The relationships. Nobody will know about me, but it'll be the relationships. You, I hear you. I'm supposed to ask for money. I'm going to hold off on that because I don't think they have any money, but I suppose I should technically yeah, get paid if this thing goes on. I hadn't thought of it that way. But am I right about uh, you being the black English police uh, on this one? They got some stuff wrong, you know, and I said, well, that's not accurate. And it makes sense to have it be real black English. Now, then there's still going to be people who say, I am uncomfortable. I am concerned that these people are using black dialect because they're white. Someone else, because they're white. But no, that's it. as long as the black dialect is accurate and half of it is from Arnon County and Langston anyway. And so every now and then there's a little something where I said, no, this would be more accurately rendered as this. But for the most part, they got it right. They were concerned. So it's a really, it's an interesting piece of work. Some people are going to find you middle class uh, elite African-American John McWhorter. How does he know? Mm -hmm. Telling people what black English sounds like <laughs> yeah. to be ironic. You know, and best. they should, and what they don't understand, and they shouldn't understand this. You can have what linguists call a passive competence, which is different from active. So no, I don't talk that, never have. But it is as strong in my ear as the kind of English I'm speaking now. I grew up in you know it, what it sounds and like. around it. I know what's right, I know what's wrong. As we say in linguistics, my intuitions are very, very strong because I grew up more around it than many people who would have reason to think. And because I'm me, I listen now. And so it's just there. Here's an example of this. Uh, a meme, and we can get off of this very quickly, but a meme that gets around is that in Philadelphia, you're always calling something a John. John means everything from thing to person to, that you can say, give me one of those Johns. Or, oh, that was one of their first Johns before their hit. Or J-A-W-N, Johns. Oh, and that okay, started John. being said in Philadelphia in the 80s. If you weren't there, you, you didn't know it. It's now kind of getting around Johns. I started reading about this John thing about 10 years ago. Linguists started noticing it. It's a thing now that people talk about in black Philadelphia and it's jumped the rails to white people. I remember listening, hearing John in the 80s and thinking, that is a new construction in black vernacular, this John, and it only seems to be here in Philadelphia. I wasn't even a linguist yet, but I remember hearing it, hearing people saying it and thinking, that is a token of this dialect now. So I, I, I listen to the dialect too. I was on John before anybody else and I never said it, but I remember hearing it in the barbershop, listening to kids saying it. So that sort of thing. But yeah, many people would think of me and they think, couldn't they get somebody more authentic to vet the dialect? But the truth is no, I'm very authentic, but just, just deep inside. So yeah. Okay, now I'm talking to the author of Nine Nasty Words, which is a <laughs> study of the uh, history of pornograph uh, pornography, <laughs> profanity, <laughs> profanity in the English language. That's my next one. And I've got to ask you, because I'm watching this TV show, my wife and I are watching this TV show, Billions. Okay, which is oh, about the, the hedge fund uh, guy right. and yeah. uh, uh, U.S. attorney guy and the, and the dancing that they're doing around uh, insider trading uh, stuff. And I hear it's good. The word motherfucker yeah. is so frequently used in the show <laughs> by these white people, unselfconsciously to one another, I'm going to destroy that motherfucker, and et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> I mean, I don't think they're really doing anything other than expressing themselves the way they imagine that these types of characters would, would talk, talk to each other. 
But I must say, to a guy in his 70s, that's me, a black guy from the south side of Chicago, it really is a striking thing to my ear to see it just so casual. I mean, they're not rap musicians. They're not street people. These are sophisticated billionaire type wheelers and dealers and movers and shakers. Mm -hmm. And yet that word now has become, A, usable, mm -hmm. and B, deracialized. Or has it? It has, it has jumped the rails in that way. You can also get that on the TV show Succession. So yeah, uh, yeah. it used to be a black word. Which is in a similar space left. with the billions. Those, those wealthy white guys doing a lot of coke and cursing all the time. And yeah, that word is no longer that Richard Pryor word. Although I grew up, I had one friend. Not uh, He only had one black friend. No, one of my great many, because most of my friends were black, used to call people just motherfuckers all the time. How many motherfuckers were in there? And I started noticing for him, motherfucker just means person, you know, how many motherfuckers are in that party? Or up, you know, up in yeah. that party. That sort of thing has jumped. Almost like niggas. It was, that's what he meant. <laughs> Man, there's so many niggas up in there, I couldn't even breathe. That's what he meant, exactly. <laughs> Sometimes he would actually say that. So yeah, that's what that is. And yet it has jumped. Is, mil is Billions good? It always looked to me like Succession, but not as good. Uh, it's probably not as good as Succession. But I like Succession a lot, but it is, it is pretty good it's 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 pretty well written and the characters are engaging and they draw you in but it's a little over the top they got an snm thing going so the guy who is the uh, new york state uh, attorney general and formerly was the u.s attorney for the southern district of new york has a fetish thing going man That's he's got a safety pin through his left nipple Ew. Yeah, I know. That makes sense. I know. Interesting. I know. He can't get off. He, he wears a tight elastic band around his thigh. He pops himself every now and then. Yeah. And he goes to this dominatrix who's this 26-year-old or so Asian uh, woman who is uh, every ah. inch the dominatrix. Right. And that is built into the marriage. He's married to a very powerful woman who's an indiv individual character. Who allows him to do this. Well, and participates in actually oh. does it with him, but is ambivalent about it. And I don't want to say too much because spoiler alert, spoiler alert, the rabbit hole of uh, bondage and sadomasochism and discipline <laughs> awaits you if you want to tune in to Showtime's tune. It's in its fifth season, I think. This is the only, Millions. oh, five seasons. Yeah. So I have like 60 things to watch. But there's a lot of stuff. I'll take a but look the, at it. But this is not half bad. I'll take, I'll take a look at it. If you like it, you like it. From blues opera to billions in, in one episode. <laughs> As an economist, the thing I like about it is, so we, you know, our models are all pristine, you know, the equations on the blackboard, the data sets and whatnot. The guys who are actually, guys and gals who are actually making money are street fighting, ruthless, cutthroat motherfuckers. They, they, are, they, they are playing every angle. They, they got a psychological thing going on. They got mobster buddies that will intervene on stuff. They want to hurt people, hurting them. Are they here in New York? Yeah, they, you know, a couple of miles from where we're sitting right now. Okay, you know? it's those. Okay. Those are the people. And their uh, army of uh, grunts who are at their terminals, you know, watching all the uh, trends and everything and looking for opportunities, looking this for opportunities. This is Wolf of Wall Street people. Okay, yeah. Where are they going to get their money? Who can they rely on? What happens if things go south? And, you know, we're talking nine-figure uh, moves here. 
that, that people are making. How they feel about the money that they're making, how much money you have to be making to make money. This dude's depressed because right. he only made seven million last year. You know, he's got a strength that he has to go and see because he only made seven million last year and he doesn't know if his uh, you know, time is running out and is he in a tailspin and you know, will he be able to recover and what they do with their money, how they it's play. It's the big short. It's like that. Is it all guys? Except for the uh, no, dominatrix no, white. No, it's not all guys. And in fact, it's not all guys and it's not all girls. There's some uh, pronoun people in there, too. <laughs> yeah, some of they, them so there. So this is a modern show. Okay. One of the strongest characters oh, is a transgender. Uh, <laughs> I mean no harm. I'm going to remember. I'm that. an old man. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I'm doing the best I can. Try to be as woke as I can possibly be. <laughs> I like her. I'm putting I like them. I like I like them, the pronoun person. Right. I like mm -hmm. them. And they are smart, just one of these smart. ruthless people? Learning to be ruthless. Okay. Learning, understanding that the ruthless, cutthroat, uh, take no prisoners, kill aspect is a really, there's this, but there's also gut, uh, you know, there's, and there's heart. And you got to be ready to fight because that's how you win. And you got to care about winning because nothing else matters when we're talking nine figures. <laughs> It's a good show, in wow. my opinion. I will take a look at one. I need a new show. I got to ask you something, then. Please forgive me. Did you vote for Eric Adams? I'm going to admit this. I did not vote in this election because I had major personal, nothing tragic, but major personal complications that made it impossible for me to get to the voting booth that day. Okay. So if, you know, somebody's going to investigate, my name is not on this one. But if I had voted, I thought long and hard and um, I would not have voted for him. Um, he doesn't taste mm. good to me. Um, there's some issues. That taste taste good to me. There's some oh, issues in his past. I, I don't <laughs> I don't like his attitude. That doesn't mean that he wouldn't be a good mayor, but I don't like that sort. And it's not snobbery. It's just um, oh. that. Um, I didn't vote for Maya Wiley either, which in my, I don't know in my circles and in my neighborhood, Maya Wiley is a is a black woman and very. Um, very woke. She was running against and, him. Yes, yeah, so she's. You would the, not have voted. You didn't vote at all, but you would not have voted for I her either. I didn't really like the cut of her jib, really, and so I would have voted for the woman who was running with mostly support from Manhattanites, who had experience and a certain basic sobriety and a certain basic pragmatism, but just wasn't enough of a star. I would have voted for Sullivan, but I did not get to do that. You so, would have voted if I may say so, with your class? No, because my class likes Maya Wiley. I mean, in my neighborhood, everybody voted for Maya Wiley, as I voted Queens? for AOC. In my neighborhood, in affluent NPR listening Queens, you were supposed to vote for Maya Wiley. It was assumed that that's who you would vote for, and I didn't tell anybody that I didn't like the cut of her jib either. I don't think she could have worked with anyone. That's the problem, and that, that can be a problem. Also, within Eric Adams, if he has a problem, that's going to be one of the problems. How do you forge coalitions? Eric Adams being in is not something I mind terribly. If he's in, then I'm going to start enjoying the charisma and thinking of it as an adventure, which I'm capable of. But I find, are we allowed to say that? It's, it's funny, it's different. 
It's one thing to be sitting in the living room with a microphone. It's another thing to be our whole bodies. I feel more exposed. But why should I? He looks to me like an asshole. And, you know, a lot of politicians are assholes. Governor Cuomo was an asshole. But there's a part of Adams that looks downright untrust, untrustworthy. And this is the thing that bothers me about him. It seems to me as if he's the kind who just enjoys being contrary because it gets on people's nerves. It's like he likes thumbing people's noses. That to me seems to be, to be different than what politics needs. All politicians tend to be egotists to some extent. No, I mean, he, just likes, he just likes going like that. If I may say so, John, those words have been spoken about you and I, that is the kind of Negro. Mm-hmm. who just gets a kick out of being a contrarian and going against the grain. Mm-hmm. And they're wrong. Of course they're wrong. But in in our case, case, but uh, you don't think so about uh, Eric Yeah, that is, that is what he's like. And he, he could be a great mayor, but not my style. And maybe I am being a little bit of a snob. Now, you're the guy that says Black Lives Matter, except when it comes to black people getting shot dead in the streets mm-hmm. of uh, all these cities around the country. Isn't it time for us to pay attention to the fact that criminal violence is mainly victimizing other black people? It's not the cops that are the primary perpetrators. That's what Eric Adams is saying. I like that about him, but there's more than that particular issue. Well, tell me what that more is, because I don't see it. You really are into him? No, I don't live in New York and I don't have a vote. Um, I'm happy that he looks like he's about to be the next mayor. I like that narrative. Black cop, relatively conservative or centrist, AOC doesn't like him, Democrat, used to be a Republican, who is standing up for working people in the neighborhoods and not in the sway of the elite college educated, uh, too precious for school, uh, know-it-alls who want to, ram their uh, particular, we don't want Amazon in our neighborhood views down the throats of, of people who are getting by on sixty or $70,000 a year. That's who I think voted for him. He got the minority vote. He didn't get the Manhattan vote. I like that. I like I, that the Manhattan snobs who run the New York Times newsroom are not going to have a carte blanche at the uh, mayor's uh, mm-hmm. offices uh, mm-hmm. coming soon. I like that. I can get with that. Here, here's, here's part of it. All of that is fine. I like those things, but it wasn't going to make me vote for him. Because there's a part of him that I think just likes getting up people's noses. And that means that he's not going to be good at building coalitions, but... He's not such a power monger, so charismatic, somebody who fills the room so much that despite being an asshole, he gets things done, as Andrew Cuomo did. So Andrew Cuomo is all about himself, too. Nobody likes him, but he managed to railroad things through and get things done, like Robert Moses. Whereas, say, I hate to use another black figure, but think about Obama, who I was very much in favor of, but he was inexperienced and introverted and wasn't very good at building coalitions. And so he wasn't able to do as much of what I hoped he would do. He is not an Eric Adams kind of personality. I'm just trying to think of somebody else who goes in unable to get stuff done. Do you think Eric Adams will get things done? Or well, he's he just been serving as a, a, a borough president, has he not? Mm-hmm. Uh, and annoying he, people. He, was, uh, he has a history in the state legislature. Mm-hmm. Annoying people. And he retired from, the, uh, from a 
real job, mm -hmm. you know, where you actually have to get up and go to work in the morning and you have to deal with stuff all day long, to say uh, on which that. he, which he yeah. uh, did for 20 years. He took the captain's exam and passed it in the NYPD. He didn't go around moaning about, we can't pass the test, we need affirmative action. He's a guy that gets stuff done, it would appear to me in, in his life. Uh, I agree that he's an outsider, but anybody, it seems to me, who was going to stick it to mm. the Manhattan elites was going to be regarded as an outsider. I'm just a little disappointed that you joined that crew, John. Uh, it's not the same thing. It's not that I don't like him because he's an outsider. It's that I don't think he can rally people around him and get things done because he's so much about being the snappy little contrarian person who'll show them that they're not going to mess with Eric Adams. That's not a politician. That's, that's a personality. Mm. Too many people don't like him. Think of Bernie Sanders. As exciting as Bernie is in some ways, he's never gotten much of anything done. And that's because he can't work with people. He's an interesting figure, but he can't work with people. It's not about whether he's an outsider. So yeah, you're making me think though. I will openly admit there's a little bit of me that doesn't like Eric Adams' manner. Yeah. There is a little bit of that, but that's not the main part of it. I just imagine he'd be in, making everybody hate him and not change this mess of a city. That's my main, my main thing. I see what you like about him and I'll be interested to see what he does, especially yeah. with the cop part. That is important. It's very important. Much better than Bill de Blasio has been able to do. So you're in love with Adams, huh? Well, I love, I mean, I'm watching from afar. Hmm. And I find it an interesting phenomenon here in New York City. It's, it's a very woke, as you say, uh, jurisdiction. And uh, it's going to be a Democrat no matter what. And this Democrat emerges from the fight, uh, even as the racial reckoning has been playing itself out. He's a cop. He's a former cop. He's uh, against defunding the police. He's, a, you know, uh, as I say, he's, he's a guy that uh, is going to speak for the uh, work a day Joe uh, more than he is for the people who write with respect for the New York Times <laughs> or who can't wait to get their I newspaper so they can mean. read what's been written in the New York Times. Yeah, I know what you mean. He is... And, and maybe he's the cutting edge of some shift in black politics more broadly. Maybe his candidacy will inspire the opposite of the Cory Bushes coming out of St. Louis or the similar politicians that you can find in, in other jurisdictions. That Isn't are, that interesting that to be in favor of the concerns of people living in dangerous neighborhoods correct. is contrarian. That's somebody who's shifting around in front of the authorities because the authorities don't want to hear that. That's interesting. Yeah, I think it's all just a matter of what sorts of configurations he's going to apply that particular contrarian personality to. But yeah, I should give him more of a break. You're right. I'm not disappointed that he's the one who won. but. I was not going to vote for him because I felt I wanted to go for somebody who was more traditionally competent and experienced, if less exciting. But that kind of person doesn't often win elections, is the problem. So, you know, which horse do you back? Yes, I, I understand that too. You make me think. All right. Um, hmm. Eric Adams, what else is on our agenda? John. Glenn. The last post at the Glenn Show uh, Substack page. <laughs> Um, was a walk down memory lane from the archives of The Glenn Show, in which we decided to put up the very first conversation that you and I had <laughs> under the Blogging Heads umbrella. 
Was that the very first one? The very first one, I'm told by my oh, man Mark Sussman, who's the newsletter funny. editor. I didn't actually go and check. It looked like the first one. You have a seven. Have one of these phones up to your ear. Yes, that's I how we're doing communicating that. over a telephone line for the audio. Yeah. And the year is 2007. It's October of 2007. That's when we started. That's Obama right. has not even won the Democratic nomination yet. Mm -hmm. And you and I started Blogging Heads conversations 14 years ago, and here we are. Mm -hmm. that, that seems to warrant some kind of commemoration. You liked Hillary, and I liked Obama. Have I we liked already Hillary. figured that out? Yeah, I, yeah. What can I tell you? Man, I liked Hillary. And you know? I thought Obama was a, was a grifter and a con man and a carpetbagger. I'm, I'm from the south side of Chicago. <laughs> and I thought Obama was full of it. I thought he was a Houdini. He had somehow hoodwinked and, and, and hypnotized the polity. Hope and change? It seemed ridiculous to me that that was a, that was a presidential campaign vision. Our time has come. We are the ones we've been waiting for. Do you remember the slogans from that? I do. In retrospect, don't they sound absolutely vapid? Yes. <laughs> I'm not going to admit it, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, they do. Damn it. But, you know, there's, there's something that we couldn't know. And this is not me trying to sidestep it. That's me sitting there looking 17, and I'm all into this Obama phenomenon, and part of it was the gut rather than the head. But... What we didn't know sitting there talking over the teleophone, like it was a different technological moment. Neither one of us at that time knew what a Twitter was. I know That's that true. in 07, I, that year I asked somebody, what is this fucking Twitter? And everybody laughed because- It took know, me another five years. Yeah, it's just, what is that? And Facebook in 2007 was just beginning to be something that people beyond college students did. I think I got on it in 07 and then didn't really start using it until 08. And so it's a whole different world. And Obama coming in, I still believe, could have created a whole new consensus about what race means in America if it weren't for that a Twitter and a Facebook could magnify what happened with first Trayvon Brown and then a Trayvon Martin and then Trayvon Brown and Michael Martin. Trayvon Martin and, Mike and Michael Brown. Because those things galvanized this sense of race issues being primarily about we black people's relationship to state-sponsored violence, so to speak. And it's around then that Ta-Nehisi Coates becomes a superstar. If it weren't for Ferguson, I think he would occupy a very different place. Not to say that he doesn't deserve what he got, but <laughs> that changed everything. And it meant that any sense that we were going to think about race on the basis of Obama or anything he said or represented just got flushed. And here we are. And as you and I both know, and you're not supposed to say this, but you and I both know that the Trayvon Martin story was nothing like what we were told back then. We both know that. Right. And 2012, I think, if I'm not mistaken. 2012. More people know, but just don't want to talk about it, that Michael Brown, that that story was nothing like what we were told. And so in a sense... Two, it's tragic that those two boys are dead, but two hoaxes ended up forming the basis of what is now considered the proper woke conversation. What's this guy do with Obama, excuse me? Meaning, 
it distracted from what could have been a whole new mood about race. I think we were on that path in 08 and 09. And then in 09, everybody gets on Twitter and Facebook. It was those years. And by 12, something can happen in Sanford, Florida, and it becomes a national phenomenon that no one would have heard of outside of Sanford, Florida, if it weren't for the new media. And that's also true of Michael Brown. It just wouldn't have had that impact. Nothing but roughly Amadou Diallo had that kind of punch of that sort until then. And so I think that it distracted America from thinking more sensibly about race. And instead, everybody started zeroing in on this, frankly, overwrought and often exaggerated version of what goes on between black men and the cops. And it just it ruined what Obama could have done culturally in that way, even as a symbol, I think. Uh, now, you're not going to have to no? agree to disagree. Rather than seeing it as a constraint on the great possibilities of Obama, who was hamstrung by the unfortunate occurrence of these technological and political events, I see it as a failure of the former President Obama having been presented with an opportunity to lead the country, not just to perform his shtick, to lead the country in a time of peril. By standing up for law and order, he should have done that. He should have given Trump-like speeches about people getting their ass off the street and into their homes, about them attacking police officers. We're going to find out who you are with facial recognition. We're going to hunt you down. About them looting and arsoning. There's no excuse for it. When uh, the stepfather of Michael Brown stands on top of a car and says, burn this bitch down, the president of the United States should have been seeing about having him indicted for the incitement to violence. He should have told the country and black people what they needed to hear after Freddie Gray you didn't mention in Baltimore and so forth and so on, which is that there's no justification whatsoever for your contempt for civility and the rules that, that allow all of us to live here in this great country together. I trust the institutions of government and law enforcement in this country, the president should have said, because I'm in charge of them. Rather, he hemmed and hawed, split the difference with these mobs mobs around courthouses, uh, said stupid shit like, if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon, which is blatantly false. No son of Obama would have looked anything like the Trayvon Martin that you and I know about from Joel Gilbert's expose of Trayvon Martin. Uh, he sent Al Sharpton out as an ambassador to black America. We'll never uh, a, 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 a huckster, an ambulance chasing anti-Semite. This is what uh, Barack Obama did. He sent. Eric Holder to try to clean up the mess because although there was no hands up, don't shoot truth, they were going to find a poetic truth in the systemic injustice of Ferguson, Missouri, which begs the question. So, no, Obama had an opportunity to lead the country. No, he wouldn't have been written up in uh, the uh, uh, scriptural uh, references of the woke. He, he would have been vilified for being a black conservative if he had done something like that, but the country needed a black conservative. Why bother electing a black man to the highest office in the land if when he gets there, he's gonna perform the same shtick that any uh, uh, hustling uh, political operative uh, who claims to be representing black people would perform. I offer you the post-presidency of Barack Obama as evidence for the case that I'm making. Absolutely vapid. Are you about to mention this 60th no, birthday? No, I don't have to mention it. <laughs> Everybody knows he and Michelle are billionaires. 
everybody knows it's all about uh, Netflix deals and, uh, and uh, whatnot. Everybody knows where Martha's Vineyard is. Everybody knows how connected he is to the very um, people to whom he was appealing. Our time has come. Can't you remember those posters? Martin Luther King's photo here, Barack Hussein Obama's photo there, and the caption being, he had a dream, now the dream comes true. I actually lived those years. I remember what that phony ass campaign was about. So, sorry, but that's how I feel, okay? So now you know. Now, Glenn, this is, this is a genuine question. You um, <laughs> accurately sussed out that um, in me there's a little bit with Eric Adams of, I don't know if I would want him over to dinner. I hate to admit it, but that's about 5% of it. Why do you hate Barack Hussein Obama so much? Oh. Do you really think that he's a canny operator? Is that really the type of person he is? Isn't he a little, little sober for that? Isn't he a little bit the lawyer? I think he's... Well, is, he really, is he really that cynical? If I come, come further along the line that I've already laid down for myself, I'm the only one that's going to get hurt by it. Barack, uh, Barack Obama is untouchable. Nobody gives a damn what I say about him. And in fact, your very question, which is not a refutation of the argument that I made, but rather an ad hominem reference, why are you saying these things about our great Barack Obama. I didn't ask that. I said, what are the things about him that elicit this level of contempt? Because it seems like it's a little bit more than anything he did. Is this genuine? Well, I, I mean, I'll just repeat myself. He ran on the historic campaign. He made the thrill run down Chris Matthews leg idea that there was going to be a black president. It was Kennedy as Camelot coming Well, in. he was. He wasn't. He did symbolize that. Well, he symbolized it, but he wasn't. Because how was Kennedy more X than Barack Obama? Kennedy wasn't that good. Um, here's what I know. I know that when he began, he had control of the Democrats of both houses of Congress and of the majority okay. of state houses. I know that when he left, Donald Trump was getting ready to be president. They lost control of everything, and uh, the Democrats took a bath in half the country. That's what I know. I know race relations got worse after the first black president was, that was uh, social media's fault. Was appointed. That was that, that was Twitter and Facebook's fault. I truly believe that. I, I think it was a failure of leadership from the top. In part, is also a consequence of that. I made the case that I made about if I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Al Sharpton. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry, Glenn. I you know you. It's because you are more of a contrarian than I am. When Obama said that about Trayvon Martin, that was a sacrosanct case. Before we knew, not only not only the facts that we know that nobody will ever admit, but even, you know, a lot of it started falling apart about six months after it became a celebrated cause. But for about 10 minutes, it just looked like this poor boy had been shot by this overzealous little neighborhood detective. And with the whole country thinking that, and Obama not in a position to know any better, it was really so bad that our black president expressed a visceral kind of sympathy with the murder of that boy. Well, I, he wasn't murdered, John. But we know that now. He was killed in an act of self-defense. A jury deliberated over the facts. They found George Zimmerman innocent and, of that claim. And yet still, and with respect, it's possible to say murder about that event in part because the president of the United States, instead of saying, 
Let's keep our powder dry, everybody. Let's be cool. These cases come and they go. We know that the facts will be fully determined in the fullness of time. I'm going to reserve judgment about what happened down there rather than jump on a bandwagon and send an anti-Semitic ambulance chaser out to represent my administration. He played you people. No room for forgiveness, Glenn, on Al Sharpton. What has he done so terribly yeah. lately? And yes, audience, I know we've been here about six times, but we never know how much of it any one of you has seen. And for those of you who are new to this, Glenn, Al Sharpton hasn't done anything reprehensible since roughly 2004 when he tried to call Howard Dean a racist for not having enough black people in his administration in Vermont where there are negative 17 black people present at all. Anyway, that is the last time I remember being angry with Al Sharpton. In 2004, I was barely shaking. Uh, Crown Heights. That, that was long Okay, before. that was a long time of Twatta Brawley. We won't even bother well, to mention. That was horrible. But uh, that thing that happened up on 125th Street where people died. Oh, with Freddy's. All of that is... Because we can't have white people, especially yeah. Jews, running any shops in the, in the hood. That was 1980. He was in a tracksuit. Is there no room for forgiveness? He hasn't done anything like that for a long time. Don't well, you? I could go ahead and comment him on you and try to find out why you're so <laughs> interested in rehabilitating this anti-Semitic anti Because I don't like hating people unless they deserve it. I didn't hate anybody. I just described them as an anti-Semitic ambulance chasing <laughs> You hate on him. <laughs> chase any ambulances. I don't know how he really feels about Jewish people. He probably doesn't have any feelings at all. He was a huckster. Yeah, he was a disgusting okay. That's quite buffoon then. But you are on him. When for 20 years he's been an ominously thin, relatively uninteresting host of a low-rated show on MSNBC. What's he and a host of others, Benjamin Crump could come in here for mention, are, mil is the are milking show. these fraught circumstances that are right here, trigger on the edge of violence and chaos for all it's worth running around giving speeches and inciting a sentiment amongst African-Americans, which is disconnected from reality and um, unrelated to what it is that actually needs to be done in order to advance the conditions of our people. And, and they're, they are performing uh, an act. And I despise the act, John, and therefore I fear some of that uh, right. contempt and some of that what you're calling hatred spills over to the personalities involved. I, I think they're mischievous. I think they're bad people in terms of the public life of the country. I think the race card that they're playing is rotten. It's rotten to the core. It's a lie. Crump deserves this. Sharpton deserved this in the era of Atari and when McDonald's food <laughs> came in styrofoam. I, I know what okay, you I'm mean. older than you, John. It's true. <laughs> just, it's true. Well, no, I'm just saying that you, you are still angry at him. I'm old enough to remember that stuff he did on television. Yeah, remember okay, there's, okay. What, there's a thing called a television? That's what he did. <laughs> but he hasn't done it lately. And I guess there was a time he and I have spoken. I'm, notice I'm about to say it two times. I'm a, becoming one of those people who inflates his memories. It wasn't two times. It was one time. I had one long talk with with in a green room Al, somewhere because he he wanted me to come in and talk to him. And yes, I was flattered just because he's a celebrity. And when he was talking about these boys, we talked about this sort of thing. And I I asked him some slightly probing questions. He would have to be a damn good actor. And then let's face it, I guess in his case he is kind of an actor. He would have to be a damn good actor to have been insincere when he talked about his true interest in helping these families cares. to cope 
with the death. He was talking about how none of them have fathers and that he goes to effort to collect money for these people. And I thought, he really, he cares. He certainly wasn't acting like he cared about anything up, up in Harlem back in 1989 or whenever that happened. But he's, he changes. This you is know? the guy uh, who had George Floyd's funeral where he preached a sermon. Yeah. Uh, used the metaphor of America having its knee on the neck of black people. He did say that. My question for you, John, is do you think that that's an accurate no. description of the condition of uh, black people in this country? No, I do not. Do, what, what good comes of that kind of demagoguery? But he really is, believes, it is demagoguery, isn't it? No, he really believes that these things are all about race because he has no reason to study the numbers the way you and I have tried to. And even if he hears somebody like us describe them, he thinks that there's a larger truth. And in our era, just like with Obama and the Trayvon comment, those larger truths can be so powerful that there has to be a little something wrong with you to speak out publicly against them. And that's true of you and me, frankly. There's something a little wrong with us. We're odd. Whereas he does think that that George Floyd was killed because he was black. He couldn't hear anything else. That doesn't make him a bad person. I have seen white people who I've tried to get this across to who look at me with this blank look. I remember the, the last person I had just like... They and you can tell it. what they're thinking is, one, he's right, but two, <laughs> it's, and a little bit of it is, what's wrong with him? He's not a good black person. And then a third part of it is, am I being one of those white people who doesn't want to listen to the truth? And then fourth, they go back to themselves. You can see it. If I were an actor, I could give you all the stages. And they go back. And you can just tell this is a fact that they can't accept. Just like if you are a person who is religiously devout, Somebody could sit and give this elegant proof that there's no God, and you just think, yeah, that's, that's interesting, and then you, you move on. That's what this black-white cop thing is. I sympathize with Sharpton in not being able to admit that. Almost no one can. That doesn't make them bad people. You really think it makes them bad people to not be able to open themselves up to that? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know about the inner thinking of these people. Me either, but I like to their, surmise. You know conscience and all of that. Uh, what I do know is that there are black leaders who are engaged in the kind of constructive developmental work, uh, educating kids, helping ex-offenders, mm. dealing with people who are uh, struggling with their housing situation and whatnot, uh, who are homeless and so forth. Um, working in communities around this country, some of them are ministers of the gospel of one stripe or another. Some of them are secular people like uh, the great Robert Woodson of uh, the Woodson Center and so on. And I know that in my uh, considered opinion, that's where the solution to these uh, issues lie. That's and where you're right. we're going to get fewer George Floyds and so forth. That kind of healing and that kind of development and that kind of uh, hands-on and that kind of people-centric uh, constructive work. I think the politics of the Democratic Party is uh, uh, perfect for creating the careers of people like Al Sharpton, who broker the race card and the votes of black Democrats for the access that they can get and who, who play a certain kind of functional role in something that I think really poorly represents the interests of African Americans rightly understood. If Al Sharpton were running around talking about charter schools, if he were running around urging African Americans to adopt kids who don't have any parents, 
if he were insisting that it's possible for black kids to compete effectively if they get the kind of instruction and support that they need to acquire uh, the intellectual skills that allow them to compete in exam school situation or anything like that. If he was going to find ex-offenders who were prepared to reject the gang life and affirm decent ways of living and uh, foster uh, relationships of guidance with young men who are not yet on the right path and so forth and so on. If he was working with the cops and not against the cops to try to keep the peace in some of these neighborhoods, um, I'd have more respect for him. But it's a very high level shtick. He's refined it uh, to perfection and he's out Jesse Jacksoning Jesse Jackson in the 21st century while the clock keeps ticking on poor black people and the demagoguery that spews out of him is almost completely unrelated to the actual material needs of his population. Joe Biden is going to rescue uh, inner city Baltimore? Really? At the brokerage of Al Sharpton? Joe Biden is going to save uh, education for poor black people? Joe Biden is going to make it safe to walk on the south side of Chicago after midnight because Al Sharpton is in the Oval Office? No. This is what the problem is. Al Sharpton knows a lot of those things, but there's one thing that can happen. You've got one of those inner city ministers, one of those inner city ex-cons, who helps a couple of kids stay on the straight and narrow, and, and they get on the straight and narrow, and they have a couple of kids themselves, and they get gray hair, and they're running a store. And you know what? No one's going to make a movie about that, and nobody is going to put that on the news, although that's where it needs to go. If Al Sharpton says one colorful thing about George Floyd that's in the news for a week, that gets this huge audience response, it's more viscerally stimulating. The idea that to be black is to run around always afraid that a cop is going to come jump you to the ground. That is a fun cowboys and Indian story. It also appeals to the probably one in three people who find the victim complex attractive. Whereas what needs to be done for the black community doesn't lend itself to that kind of drama. And so it doesn't get as much attention. And so, yeah, you're calling Sharpton having shtick. Yeah, he's got some lines that he uses because it gets a rise out of an audience. Yeah, I can see how he would do that. It's not that he doesn't do anything else, but you're not going to hear about it. I have sat at a forum in Harlem. I forget why I was there, because I was giving a little talk. It was a, it was a, it was a school, it was an after-school program for disadvantaged kids, and I was there at the end of the year ceremony. One of the guests was Anthony Appiah for some reason. The other guest was Al Sharpton. And he's up there on stage. <laughs> and he was talking about school and tutoring and how he was in favor of charter schools, et cetera. But no one ever heard about that. And there were no cameras because that wasn't an exciting evening as opposed to him speaking at George Floyd's funeral. That's and quite, that's the problem. If I may, I mean, that's quite an unusual assemblage. You. Sharpton and Anthony Appy, who people may need not know, is a professor yes. of philosophy, a very distinguished scholar. British uh, and Ghanaian. Uh, Ghanaian by yeah. birth and uh, British and American by education and former professor at Harvard and at Princeton now, if I'm not mistaken. He's at Princeton, right. But very erudite, uh, you know, writes books that almost nobody can understand. You know who so. organized this? Well, um, Lenora Fulani who we have never talked about. And she runs, or ran, I've kind of lost touch with her, but ran this after-school program. And she and I, I hung out a little bit for a couple of years. And so that's what this was. 
and I was there, and I wasn't there as, to put it carefully, more people probably know who I am now than, than then. It was Appiah and Sharpton, and I honestly forget what my part of it was. I remember I was wearing a blazer, so I must have gotten up and said something to somebody, but it was about them, and they both gave interesting talks. But Sharpton was perfectly sane, but there's no drama in that. That wouldn't make it into the movie. But th this is a problem because the real work is undramatic. What do you do about that? I don't know if there's an answer. You elect Eric Adams is what you do. Oh, good. You, you find a black <laughs> man, an authentic black man out of the community who's got who has show lived his him. life. Right. Uh, he's got a good head on his shoulders. He's got a, a strong spine and some cojones. And uh, who can go up against the establishment rather than uh, make love to him. All right, Glenn, you got me on that one. I, I can't even... You know I'm sitting here trying to think of a, a, a polite yes but to fix about half of it. I can't. That's good. That is a good thing about Eric Adams. Yeah, because he could make the undramatic dramatic based on the fact that he's a scrappy personality who likes to get in people's faces. He's got the street cred. Yeah, I can give you that. Uh, let me try this. Um, he also has the ability, perhaps, to attract a coalition of working class and middle class New Yorkers, this is Eric Adams, across the racial lines. He's probably going to get some decent support in Staten Island. I don't know, but tell me if I'm wrong about he that. He will, that message. That where the cops and the firefighters and uh, whatnot come from, and the Irish and the Italian, and the, if there are any working class Jews left in New York, the working class there Jews and whatnot would, mm -hmm. would get behind uh, something like that. Rather than uh, the racial alienation and division that one associates with Al Sharpton, perhaps I'm wrong about that, but that's what I see. Um, and I don't think that's a bad model uh, for the country going forward to try to uh, tone down the black-white schism thing and uh, orient the discussion about what do people who are not flush and, you know, need to be able to get by, get their kids educated, feel secure in their retirement, uh, know that somebody's going to be able to pay the doctor bill if the time comes, things of this sort. So and make the trains run on time and make it safe to be able to go down to the corner bodega and get a carton of milk without thinking somebody is going to blow you up before you get home. This is another genuine question then. How much influence do the Brie and Chardonnay people have? where the idea on Eric Adams will be that he talks down to black people, doesn't understand root causes. White editorialists will get on him about that because they know they can get away with it. The black punditocracy, nine out of 10 of them will get on him about you know, being condescending in that way. How much will their contempt and people who vote with that matter in comparison to the fact that he could become white Staten Islander's favorite new black person? Yeah, in that sense, because he defends, for example, the police and people who are keeping order who might feel burdened by the current Brie and Chardonnay consensus. I'm not sure I know the answer to that question. It may be that he keeps on being elected just because of the sheer numbers of those people. But then the commentariat, the mainstream commentariat, are always going to feel differently and it's just going to get worse because Adams is not going to cozy up to them. I'd be interested to see. Somebody should look at this episode, you know, in, in 14 years and see, see what happened there. I really couldn't say. It's a very new thing to have somebody like him as the mayor who is black. 
you know, there. How does he do in the churches uh, around the black community? Have you any idea? Does he go I in there comfortably? Don't know. Can he give a, a speech in a, a vernacular and in a timber that would appeal to the church going? I don't need uh, to wonder whether or not he could do that. Yes, he could do that. Has he done a whole lot of it? Yeah. I hadn't heard of you it. You said he has a past. Mm-hmm. What? Tell me a little bit about that. I don't know. Um, something with women. Um, some, something unsavory that I don't remember at this point because I've been distracted with other things. And, that's, and just in general, there's a constant refrain that he's all about himself, that he doesn't make allies, that he just steps on people as he climbs okay. up. And that's not what's said about everybody who reaches his point. It just made me think he's not going to be a good colleague. He's not going to run things because nobody's going to like him. And he doesn't have a bunch of people behind him ready to help him now that he's in. Remember the Obama people? You know, he was floated in. The idea was that there were all these people in support. He had at least built a coalition, no matter how thin. There is no Eric Adams coalition, except I imagine he's got a couple of running buddies. Worries me. But it's a new world. Maybe things will go well. All right. Well, I wonder if we can end this conversation. Today is August 24th. Yesterday, August 23rd, was the one-year anniversary of the shooting of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Oh, yeah. And uh, it just, to me, shows how fast time is flying. I mean, it's already a year. And yet, on the other hand, it seems like a long, long time ago because so much has happened in that year. Jacob Blake... um, was uh, shot several times by Seven in the times. back by a police officer. There had been a scuffle. I'm not going to try to describe the circumstances. I do know that investigations have exonerated the police officer who is back on duty and has gone without being punished for shooting Jacob Blake. So there was the determination that uh, the officer had justification for shooting him. Blake uh, was in possession of a weapon. He was he had a knife. Had been v- very vociferously resisting uh, arrest. They tased him many times, but he kept on resisting they, even he, that. They had been called to the scene by the woman, mother of his children, who had uh, a warrant uh, out for him for sexual assault, trespassing. And, he had uh, the so children on. in the car. He had them in the car. She away. feared that he was going to take them away, et cetera, et cetera. The kids are watching this, in other words. Right. Yeah. And he had a knife, and he turns around getting into the car. Kenosha, Wisconsin, was ripped apart by the civil disturbances that ensued. Of course, everybody uh, who was anybody of the uh, uh, Crump uh, variety was on the scene to represent and to to play it up. Um, In fact, uh, it was during the presidential campaign, August of 2020, both Joseph Biden and Kamala Harris met with the family of, jo- of Jacob Blake, and Biden had a well-reported telephone call to the uh, injured uh, uh, miscreant uh, from his uh, hospital bed, speaking with the soon-to-be elected president of the United States. Um, what the truth about that incident, uh, what truths do we uh, discern in that incident. What do we make of that incident? I'm prepared, as you will not be surprised, to let you know what I think, but I'm curious about what you think with a year's retrospect about that that affair. I think one of the major sticking points between you and me and the rest of the world is this issue of the cops and black men in particular. And this one, I'm with you, if I can take the liberty of predicting how you feel, 
in that especially over the past couple years, it has become clear to me that whatever the original story is about a Jacob Blake is never true. Not just that sometimes it isn't true, it's never true. And by the time Blake happened, I had been fooled so many times that I must admit that last summer I was thinking, there's no way that this is just the story of a guy with a knife who runs away from the cops and turns to get into the car and gets shot in the back seven times. I thought that there's no way that's what happened. That doesn't sound like what normal human beings would do, even white ones who are cops. You knew there was more. And it seems that it always is about a year. I'm not sure why it's that long, but it's always about a year before you hear the real story. And the real story is always vastly different and all but or completely exonerates the cops. And in the case of Jacob Blake, if anybody looks at the facts, that's clearly true. The cops did nothing wrong. And, you know, it's not that Jacob Blake had to be a saint, but he was much, 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 much less than a saint during that episode. And what happened was unfortunate but the cops should go free based on that one, unless outright lies are being told, which they aren't. And yet, what you describe with these people you know, in power, these influential people, treating Jacob Blake as if he was Amadou Diallo, you know, reaching out to the family, essentially presuming that a grievous injustice has happened. And the fact that they do that because they're doing it for the nation. They're, they're up on stage performing that part. But they know that that's what they must do in order to have the proper bona fides with black people and our fellow travelers is, yes, absolutely revolting. I, woke, I, I wrote my my upcoming book, Woke Racism. Oh, I have to plug it a little. It's coming in October. Sure. I wrote that. And even in that, there's one point where I mentioned Jacob Blake. I'm writing it right around that time. And I remember thinking, well, you know, at this point, if I say something about George Floyd, everybody is thinking about this new case, Jacob, um, Jacob Blake. Blake. And um, I thought, we can't know what this is going to be, and I don't want to get caught short. So I'm going to have to make it clear that I know that that happened. And so I put his name in there thinking, I wonder what the real story on that person is. Here we are. And so, yeah... It's always like that. Trayvon Martin, Michael Brown, Jacob Blake, George Floyd, someone else was killed in the same way, which is what nobody ever wants to talk about. Tony Timpa doesn't White count, guy. only George Floyd does. Now, I'm not saying there's anything that yeah. George Floyd was doing wrong. So yeah, this is the sticking point with race. And we are lied to about these things all the time and everybody engages in this play acting. And until that stops, I have a hard time seeing how we get past this. But I know at this point that whenever I hear about one of these shootings, I know that if it's something that makes the white cops sound like cartoon characters, it isn't true. It's never true. But you have to wait a year for the truth to come out. And during that year, everybody will talk about these cases as if they're evidence that everything is Amadou Diallo all over again. And it never is. That's how I feel about this. Yeah, well, you're right. You predicted uh, more or less accurately my own sentiment, uh, although I must say I'm very disappointed both in the politicians and in the press because it's so phony and it's full of lies. Everybody knew from jump that Jacob Blake, Blake was no fucking good. Okay? Everybody knew that he was not a near-do-well. He was a fuck-up. I pick up the news. I went and actually went and looked. I went and looked at how this was reported. And uh, we have testimony from him from his hospital bed to young men out there in America, black men in America, about don't waste, you only got so much time, you, et cetera, et cetera. We got 
laments about the pain that he's in. He caused this situation. He created this situation. Of course, I wouldn't have wanted someone to be shot, but some pe sometimes people get what they've got coming to them based upon how they act. Jacob Blake was one of those cases. The woman was terrified of him. He was terrorizing her and kidnapping her children. He shot in front of his kids. I'm reading the newspaper to try to find mention of the knife. There's no mention of the knife in the news report. Kamala Harris and Joseph Biden running for the highest offices in the land meet with this family and then issue out reports about the suffering and the pain. It's phony. It's a lie all the way down. They know it. And not only do they know it, the person who's leading off the local news broadcast in Chicago, Cleveland, Detroit, and St. Louis also knows it. The person who is in charge of the newsroom deep reporting at places like the Washington Post and the New York Times also knows it. They know who he was, and yet they put it forward as him some kind of victim of police violence? It is a lie, and it's a completely disgusting lie. And by the way, it's politically ruinous. What do you think white people in suburban St. Louis, suburban Chicago, suburban Detroit, and suburban Cleveland, and suburban Pittsburgh, not to mention Kenosha, are thinking about this. They know the part of town that Jacob Blake hung out in. They know who those people are and they know what they do. They know who's in the local prisons for robbing and assaulting. Carjack. And so in carjack. And they know what's going on on the street. This phony lie doesn't fool them. It drives them to their respective corners. And people like Biden have done their sums. They care less about integrity and about the country than they do about getting elected. And they're using black people. And too many of us are too stupid or have too little self-respect to call a halt to it. That's what I think. Yes. As always, I'm not sure they know, but they're hiding it. I think psychology is frustrating and complicated. I think that a lot of black America and white America think that truth is somehow different when it comes to black people. So quick, everything you're saying is tr true, but quick example. Remember Jussie Smollett? Oh, oh yeah. Remember the little uh, actor? What, Juicy Smollett. Smollett, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Who's that? That's Chris Rock that? or, or it's somebody. It's one of those comedians, <laughs> man. <laughs> he deserved it. Yeah, Ju Juicy Smollett. Yeah. He, he was um, this Person, he's 30-something, he's an actor on Empire. Whatever happened to Empire? I enjoyed it for the first yeah, two seasons. Yeah, it was seasons. a nice little show. It was fun. But um, he, he fabricates this hate crime against himself. This is what's interesting about <laughs> Juicy, is that it was, it was fabricated. It was clearly made up. And I don't know what the official status is, whether we're allowed to. I know that I'm not allowed to say it in print, even to this day. You have to say alleged. But it's obvious he made that up because it was so ridiculous and nobody's going to vet us. So he made, he made it up. Once everything opens up, I would give it a year. Jesse Smollett is going to come out in public with a little smile on his face, and he's going to be interviewed by respectable people. Everybody's going to know that he made that shit up. And yet, he's going to be accepted as walking around acting as if on some level he got railroaded. It's always going to be that there were certain questions, but that something happened to him. I can just see it. 
Robin Roberts or somebody is going to be interviewing him, and he's going to be sitting there with this smug little smile talking on his way. He's, you know, he's going to do a podcast or something where he's going to be giving life advice. And there's going to be this general notion that he didn't lie, that because he's black, it's different, that there's a larger narrative. It's very critical race theory. And everybody's going to accept it. Jesse Smollett, has, he's not finished. He'll be back. And you're not supposed to say, you will never be supposed to say, you created a hate crime against yourself. And whenever he's asked about it, he's going to say something oblique, and he's going to be allowed to get away with it. That's what, this is what you don't like about Sharpton. It's maybe all sim symptoms of the same thing. If you're black, the truth doesn't matter. And yes, that is utterly revolting. But I don't think people are walking around doing it on purpose. I think that it's a religious thing. That's what it is. All right. <laughs> well, we agree. We have disagreed. We have agreed. But we here. have agreed more. Yeah. Uh, and here we are, 14 years later. That's right. Uh, we're going to call it to a close here. The Glenn and John show will be back in a couple of weeks. But thanks so much, John. Thank you, Glenn.